Yes, hello everyone, and welcome to the second season of the None But the Brave podcast. I am Hal Schwartz, and as always, I'm here with my great buddy and newly minted star of Turkish <laughs> television, Mr. Flynn McLean. Hey, Hal, how you doing? That was that was fun at eight fifteen in the morning. <laughs> Check it out on our Twitter page if you don't know what I'm talking about. Anyway, it's like deja vu all over again, Flynn. I, I feel like we've done this already. Uh, I think we have, but. Uh... Things change, and we are nothing if not flexible. Yes, and we like to react to current events, and Rolling Stone released a cover story about Bruce by our good friend Brian Hyatt, and I got to say, well, we're jealous that Brian got to spend a day at the farm. He interviewed Bruce. He heard the new record. He saw the accompanying film, and the piece has a lot of really interesting information. Yeah, it certainly is a fantastic piece, and a lot very informative and maybe one of the one of the best best ones that, that we've seen in at least of the last 10 years or so. Oh yeah, and and Bruce was very open. They obviously have a comfort level together and there's a lot to talk about here. I mean, the first thing I think that's most exciting to us, Bruce did <laughs> confirm the existence of tracks 2. Of course, we've talked about that over the life of the show and we had heard as we had said from several sources that it had been in development for a couple of years and and now we know officially that it is something that's being worked on and sounds like will be arriving at some point in the future. Yes, and it sounds like that work on that was c- kind of led to the inclusion of those three old songs uh on on letter to you so i'm looking forward we're obviously all looking forward to hearing how he incorporates 72 lyrics with 2019 e street band yeah and you should take some credit you did say that in the teaser that you suspected that might be the case (laughs) once i saw the titles it was like hmm i wonder about that so it's good to see that it's true it's so interesting that going back into the archives like that gives him a creative spark and he even mentioned in the article that it's almost like collaborating with himself from the past. It's great that, that he talked to Brian about this. We got some some new information about the album, about the writing was somewhat spurred by uh, the passing of George Deist, uh, Bruce's bandmate from the Castiles. And so that kind of gives it, it, we were kind of speculating that this could be his mortality album. And I, I think that's going to be accurate. Yeah, I think when you take the song titles on the record and the fact that what he said about George Thies, it does seem to be uh, an album that is going to be a tight narrative, and and the narrative seems to be reflecting back on his career and his life. And you know, we've talked about this before. He is getting, of course, to the end of his career. He's going to be seventy-one years old, and it seems to be on his mind. Though he d- did also <laughs> point out very much so that he feels he has a long road still ahead of him. Yes, and one of the cool quotes was, "I uh, when I make music, I I want to get it out." and Let's, you know, he hasn't certainly hasn't done that for good chunks of his career, but let's hold him. Let's hope he he stays to his word uh, in the last in the last part of it. Well, I think that that's what happens. I think, you know, he used to struggle so much to get the music out and he he put so much into it. And not that they didn't put a lot into this, but it was a different process. They describe in the article each song was basically recorded in two or three hours. They went into the studio for four days. Steve even says they had booked five days and they got so far along that the fifth day they basically just listened to the album back. They didn't do any recording. And well, that's was the process when they were recording in, the, I guess, the '77 to '84 era. But of course, even back then, it wasn't just okay. Here are the 12 songs I want to bang out this week. It was more like, 
all right, here are 10 songs that I want to work on. I want to work on this week. And then they do that, you know, every two weeks until there's, you know, 80 to 100 songs for him to choose from. So this time it sounded like it was a lot more focused from the get go. Yeah. And I don't even know if you can compare those two periods, because as you just said, I mean, Yes, they may have been recording a song every two or three hours back in 82, 83. But as we know, he tortured himself. He came up with 80 songs and there were 50 different album configurations he thought of. I mean, (laughs) here he just had a group of songs. They recorded them. They said, that's a record. And now we're going to hear it on October 23rd. Well, of course, part of that may be he's just not as prolific now as he was back then i mean back then it seemed like he was bringing in or what we've heard he was bringing in like a batch of new songs every other day to the studio and now it sounds like he struggled to get these get these nine songs written and it finally came and it was a relief to him that he was able to, to write for the east street band again and well i guess that that's then that's the album yeah and i think that that probably makes it a little bit more meaningful for him because when he described the struggles he was having writing for the band with Scorsese, you could tell he was really relieved when when the songs finally came out of him. And that really must fire him up to think that they went into the studio, they got these songs down so quickly, and and now he feels good about it, th- that the album can come out. And, and, you know, look, the results remain to be seen because we haven't heard it yet, although Brian was very high on the record. And it certainly sounded like he really enjoyed the process. Bruce enjoyed this recording process. So hopefully it's a it's a it's an approach he'll he'll take again before it's all over. Yeah, and hopefully we'll get a second song this week. It seems like that's very possible. They did the same sort of thing on Western Stars leading up to the release. I don't know what the next song will be. I, I think somewhere we heard it might be ghosts. I don't even remember where that came from. Brian does call ghosts rousing. So that does sound like the type of thing that could be released as a single. Yes, it does. And I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing House of a Thousand Guitars. Uh, not because it's the one reference to the current political era, but because it sounds like a, a great rocking song with, with so much going into it that Brian even described it as being not too far from the land of hope and dreams. One other interesting tidbit from the article, the period of 2010 to 2012, which we have discussed because of Wrecking Ball and Western Stars, it now turns out there's a third record from that period that Bruce revealed to Brian. He wouldn't give any details about it, but it does sound like he plans to get that out at some point as well. Well, if memory serves, Ryan Aniello had talked about Bruce working on a gospel album before the before the Wrecking Ball concept hit him. I think that album is what uh, is what produced Rocky Ground, and I think another one. I think it was Shackled and Drawn. So it's very possible that that's the album he's talking about here. But of course, <laughs> you know, he al- he always has half an album in his back pocket, according to Steve. So. We, we don't know for sure. Well, I don't know how they're going to sequence all these releases coming up with the tracks to the 2010 record. Who knows what else? But he's obviously got a lot that he's working on, and uh, we'll, we'll we'll look forward to it all. And of course, uh, this next month we we get to hear we get to hear the full letter to you, and we just got the archive release at 8684, and we had uh, from my home to yours on E Street Radio. So we really have an embarrassment of riches. We sure do. And let's start with the archive, August 6, 1984. Now, not to toot our own horns, but we did (laughs) highlight this show in episode 18 when we did the Born in the USA tour that it is a show that they should release. This is the third release, of course, from the Meadowlands in 84. 
this to me is by far the best mix. And, and I got to say, I'm not really understanding why there's such differences between the mixes. Do you have any thought on that? Because I looked it up and both 8.6 and 8.20 were both recorded by the record plant truck, 24 track, two inch analog tape. I don't know why there should be such a difference in the mix. Well, I guess it would be what Alt Seller heard back when he did the 820 show. I guess that was in 2018. And, you know, he's had two years, over two years more of mixing Bruce. So he's more familiar with with how with how Bruce sounds, how the how the band sounds, how the audience interacts with with every with the band on stage. So maybe he's just fine tuning some stuff. But but yeah, it, it is it is a phenomenal mix. Things just things come out at you that you've really that you ha- that I haven't heard before, especially the organ on on some songs. Yeah, this mix is I think the best of the three. Although H20, of course, I, I think is widely considered to be a superior show, one of the best shows of the Born in the USA tour. But one of the things I did today, I AB'd Dancing in the Dark from H6 and H20. There is so much more life, and you know how much I like to feel the building on the H6 mix. It's it's really quite interesting that that it turned out this way. Because you can really feel the clapping and the audience reaction to dancing. And and I always liked H20, but at the time, I think we both felt it was a little dry. And to me, it's again, it's just a little bit of a mystery, considering same venue, basically uh, two weeks apart, same method of recording, and the mix is that distinct. So uh, whatever it is, I do like the H6 mix quite a bit. It is it is phenomenal. It is it is alive, as you said. It's you really do feel the energy in the room a lot more than than even on the A twenty one. I guess especially on the A twenty. I never felt that it was lacking as much audience as as others felt, including including you. So it didn't really bother me at the time, but uh, this one, I, I can definitely feel the difference when listening. Now, when we talked in episode eighteen about this show, we specifically mentioned Street Fighting Man and. It's pretty Titanic. <laughs> well, that was just the sample that they, uh, the teaser that Nugs put up on YouTube to, to kind of announce the show. And yeah, it uh, it grabs you there, and it's one of those songs that it was it was uh, of the times when it was written. I guess in the late '60s, and again when he did it in '84, and then it's even true now in 2020, unfortunately. Uh, it's really fiery and he seems very fired up. I don't know. I, I listened to it several times, both because it's great and because I, in the middle, he seems to yell out. I don't know <laughs> if he's yelling at someone or what's going on. Is Did you hear it that he seems to go like, oh, fuck, like really loudly in the middle? <laughs> well, it was pointed out to me by uh, our, our friend Tom Cunningham, actually, who does oh. the the we Sunday the Sunday morning radio show uh, on down on the shore dedicated to Bruce and and he was like Flynn do you do you hear this oh fuck in there and I'm like well I had noticed it before so I listened to it again it was with that specifically in mind and yep there it is thanks Bruce thanks for making it unairable on uh, on on uh, airwave radio I don't think he was getting too much radio play anyway with the archives but that's neither here nor there <laughs> well, I, I don't I, I, I think Tom was kind of was kind of disappointed by it, but oh really? Oh, because yeah. he can't play it, right? right. Oh yeah, yeah right. I got I got it. it. Yeah. yeah, I don't know. They they can bleep that out, and uh, I he could probably play it if he wanted to. Uh, yeah, you would think so. I mean, uh, 
I guess they had a somebody put together an FCC friendly version of Hey Blue Eyes. So cer- surely, cer- certainly they could come up with uh, with an FCC approved version of, of this one song. I think so. And the rest of the show is really, really solid. The open all night is a real treat. I always love that story. And uh, there's a nice version of Fire in this show. So all in all, I mean, just a really stellar archive release. Now, he also, and we should get your take on this, in the essay for this show, Eric dropped in, which I think we already suspected that the only shows they have from 1984 are the four shows that were recorded at the Meadowlands. Of course, three have now been released. And unfortunately, none of the fall. We talked a little about this as well in episode 18. It's too bad, but that was how things were done at the time. I mean, we know they've recorded at least probably 10 or 12 shows from the Born in USA tour. There are quite a number of shows from the stadium tour that haven't been released yet. It's a shame, but not really anything that can be done about it. What's your take? (laughs) Well, I was going to say that uh, while we were patting ourselves on the back about encouraging them to release this particular show, 8-6, at the time we were really under the impression that they only recorded four shows in 84, and those were these four from the Meadowlands, the first two and the last two. So, and they, considering they released the first and the last, uh, we were kind of uh, kind of on a 50-50 there. Uh, could have been this one or could have been 819, but I'm so glad they went with this one just because of the the set, the set list changes from, actually from both shows, or I think nine songs different from, from each show. Oh, we knew they weren't going to release 819 before this show because, as you just pointed out, this show is much more distinct. 819 is actually very close to 820. Ah, okay. I hadn't totally realized that, but that yeah. make, that does make sense. And and of course, Street Fighting Man, it's it's the highlight highlight of this release. So we were right on that one. <laughs> yes, we were. And uh, as you say, it was a pretty easy call. And I expect that next time for the Born in USA tour, they'll obviously go back to 1985. And my guess would be one of the giant stadium shows. That would be my guess, too, considering, as, as you know, they released the one from uh, eight from Los Angeles in 85. So it would be a logical guess to to go with Giant Stadium 85. Of course, based on the schedules, we're probably not going to not going to have another uh, 85, 84, 85 show for about another year. Yeah, that seems to make sense. Yeah. And so that that's our discussion of the 8-6 archive. Uh, more Bruce stuff going on, as Flynn said at the top of the show. We got From My Home to Yours, Volume 12, The End of Summer. Is that Was that what he called it? I think that's what he called it. I think he called it Summer's uh, summer, End. Yeah, summer, Summer's End. Yes, excuse right, me. The, based on the John Prine song. Right. And that's, and that's what it was. He did a, it was almost a, a memorial to summer of all the summers from, from his youth. And, and certainly this summer was a lot different as, as he said, and it was kind of, the, it was a kind of depressing one. I'm sorry, but it uh, was definitely melancholy about summer being over and summer loves ending. And it was just very different. Well, I just like that. He played the door summer's almost gone. And he said that was one of his favorite door songs. That's always been one of mine. And that song definitely has a bit of melancholy to it. So that was in keeping with the theme. Yes, and I, I didn't know that how big of a Bruce fan or how big of a fan Bruce was of REM. I think this was this is the second song he's included in, from uh, in one of his radio shows. These shows are obviously so welcome, and it's so great to have 
him doing this on a regular basis. And I really enjoy listening to them. But I will say, like, there's not really much for us to say about this one. Unlike the when he when he was talking about the protests and there was a lot of political conversation, or obviously when he did the Southside and Steve show or the Patty show, there there was really a lot there. This really just experience it. Go to E Street Radio and listen to it or listen through the app on demand. It's a great listen. I don't know. Do you have anything else to say about it? <laughs> well, I was hoping when he did the motel suddenly last summer that he was going to go into Banana Rama's Cruel Summer, but uh, no such luck. This this '80s music fan was just a little bit uh, too greedy in that one. Well, you never know. Maybe he'll play that one in the future. <laughs> that would be really awesome, actually. <laughs> <laughs> well, <you'll... laughs> anyway, let's move on to our main event, don't you think? Oh, you, let's go for it. So we are pleased to welcome to the show a Pittsburgh legend, frontman of the House Rockers, and of course, for the last 25 years, a frequent collaborator with the subject of our show. He's here to discuss the 40th anniversary release of his second LP, Have a Good Time But Get Out Alive, which is out now from Cleveland International on CD and vinyl. You can also find it streaming on platforms like Apple Music and Spotify. Joe Grishecki, I'm Hal, and I'm here with my co-host Flynn. Thanks for joining us. Hi, guys. How are you tonight? Oh, we're good. Thank you so much for for joining us. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. So have a good time, but get out alive. Uh, Flynn and I have listened to it quite a bit lately, and I have to say it really is a great album. I know when it came out, Grail Marcus and the Village Voice called it the strongest album by an American band this year. He was talking about 1980. You had three big-name producers on the record, Mick Ronson, Ian Hunter, and, of course, Steve Van Zandt. But it doesn't really sound like the recording process was totally smooth. Can you give us some recollections about what it was like making this record? Uh, well, this was the first record where we actually spent a prolonged period of time in the studios. Our first record, I mean, we were about as raw as you could get. Uh, band, um, we had no... <laughs> No one who ever recorded before or had any kind of experience in the music business. And um, we did the first record really piecemeal, um, one day at a time, until we got to the end of it. And uh, I spent a couple days overdubbing and um, putting some lead guitar on it. But that was when the album was, all the tracks were done. So the whole studio process was was, was new. It was a new thing for us. And um, we knew going into this record that we had a, a period of uh, rehearsing in New York City at SRI Studios. And then we had a, uh, a week or 10-day buyout at Media Sound on uh, West 57th Street. So we knew that we were going to... Uh, do this record in a whole different manner than we did the first one and we were excited about it and uh to my recollection steve van zandt uh and mick ronson sort of just came aboard during the rehearsals i i don't believe that their names were mentioned when we first got the, you know first got the word we were going to new york to do this record and uh both of them, Andy and Hunter, all had professional and uh, personal relationships with Steve Popovich, who was the head of Cleveland Entertainment, Cleveland International. So st- the initial producers were going to be Steve 
Popovich and Marty Mooney. And I believe by the second day, and they were really great guys and, and really music business people, but um, as far as musicianship and being able to translate their ideas, uh, they had a bit of a difficult time during, doing that for us. So I think that Steve initially brought Mick Ronson on to, uh, to help you know, flesh out the ideas he might have had for the record. And um, so one day he shows up with, with uh, Mick Ronson, and then uh, I think the very next day he showed up with Steve Van Zandt. Wow. Now, it's been 40 years, so you have to, <laughs> have to forgive me a bit on, on some of the memory stuff. But I, I know both of them, you know, we were thrilled to be working with both those guys. Um, and then Ian started coming around a little bit later in the whole process when um, we got into the studio. I don't think that Ian was at any of the rehearsals. It was mainly Mick and, and Steve, Steven. So it was uh, Steve Popovich who, who brought in, and, and Maddie and Marty Mooney who brought in Steve, or yeah, or, yeah, okay. they were. Well, Steve Popovich, uh, he was the uh, driving force behind signing Southside Johnny. Ah, uh, that's and, right. Okay, and the Asbury Jukes to Epic, and he, Steve, and uh, uh, both the Steves were very close friends. You know, they they not only were very close professionally, but also personally. Now, Steve was not involved in the entire process. I'm talking about Steve Van Zandt. It does seem like reading some of the materials that uh, Randy sent us and some of the interviews you've done, that Steve did make a lasting impact, though, on your songwriting process. Can you yeah. tell us a little about that? Well, you know, Steve was um, a, a really great arranger. And uh, when we started picking the songs apart, I remember one song in particular was Angela, and um, he said to me, "You know, you have some really good lyrics on 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 these songs, and Angela is not so good." He says, "Is there a reason for that?" And, I, and uh, my reply was something to the effect that, "Well, it's just a throwaway rock song." And he went, "No, no, no, nothing's a throwaway. Everything counts. You got to work as hard on every lyric as possible to make it count." And um, so, so we met. We met one one day early before we went to the studio. Met for a, a, like a late breakfast, early lunch, in a, in a restaurant in New York, and we worked on these lyrics, refining the lyrics, especially the ones that you know for the songs that weren't quite as good as as some of the the things I had already done, and. Uh, we were staying at the Barbizon Hotel, uh, Central Park West, and we walked back to the to, to the uh, hotel and got in the hotel and was talking for a while and went up to the rooms to keep on working on the lyrics, and I had lost all of them. Oh, all my no. Lyrics, every single one was gone. You just left them and, on the table? Uh, we looked everywhere. Panic set in. <laughs> and uh, the only thing I could think of was, man, I left them back at the, the, the uh, restaurant. So I went running out, out the front door of the hotel. I was walking up the street. I got about a couple hundred yards from the hotel. And back in in the day, uh, back in the 80s, they used to have these uh, garbage cans that were like net wire mesh attached to the parking meters. Oh, yeah. I'm you old see, enough to remember those. <laughs> I don't know if you remember those. But, <laughs> but anyways, 
about a hundred yards from the hotel, I look and uh, I don't even know what made me look over to, to, to this one parking meter, and there were all the lyrics. Uh, somebody, I dropped them on the street. Somebody picked them up, threw them in the garbage. Ouch! And miraculously, I found them. So uh, I can remember Steve saying, "Well, this this record got to be a special record because <laughs> that was a miracle in itself to happen in New York City." <laughs> that is a crazy story. Yeah, very very lucky. Yeah, but, miracle yeah, is, is he, the right he, term. You know, he he definitely influenced. Uh, you know, was very instrumental in 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 pushing me to be a better writer and. Uh, Forever thankful for that to him. I'm going to ask uh, about a couple, a couple of different songs that that are on the album. Uh, Rockola really, really hit me hard. Um, it's what I found interesting was that it's such a such a ballad on the album, but then on the bonus tracks on the 40th anniversary release, it's a rocker and it sounds very natural as a rocker. Um, which which one came first, and how did you figure out which one to release? Well, the demos were always always the stuff that we did in Pittsburgh. That's primarily what we had prepared to take with us to New York. And uh, it just wasn't working. You know, when you get in the studio, sometimes it just don't not living up to the expectations you had for the song. And Mick Ronson, uh, who was a classically trained pianist, by the way, oh, uh, just, just walked over to the piano and just, just played the song. You know, he took it from a fast song to a slow song. And it was part of our education to show, you know, not to be stuck on any one uh, set arrangement We when we went in. You know, along with S- Steve changed some arrangements for stuff. And uh, s- so did Mick and so did Ian. And, you know, we try to keep uh, an open mind about it because we, we were really, really excited about having uh, Rock Ola as a, you know, it, it, we were playing it in the clubs and people loved it, but it it took on a whole new meaning uh, when it was slowed down like that. The the lyrics became much more prominent. Okay, yeah, I definitely got the, got that feeling. I mean, I just it, it's a very different feel, and I and I I can see where it was where it would have been popular in the Pittsburgh clubs when you were playing it before the release of the album. Yeah, but it it it, it, it was I thought almost a perfect ending to the record. Yeah, you know, really good. From from the first time we played it, uh, you know that that uh, take, you know, is probably take one of that particular arrangement. There was another arrangement on it that it was a little bit longer, but the 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 short, sweet, you know, get to the point uh, uh, approach to it seemed to work best for that particular song. And it does work very well as an album closer, as you said. Well, it was you know it was one of those nights we were driving home. Uh, we were always, you know, uh, flying by the seat of our pants, and we played a, a, a gig in Cleveland, and nobody liked it. And we were driving back home uh, th- through the country, back to get to back to Pittsburgh. You know, driving back home for the sticks. <laughs> you know, nobody liked the show, but uh, you know, in those days we were playing constantly, so we knew the. You know, we were kind of had gotten our ass kicked <laughs> we were feeling <laughs> kind of bad about it but uh you know we we were bound and determined to come back the next night because there was a show a show you know the very next night for us we played all the time constantly so you're driving between cleveland and pittsburgh almost almost every other day no no not every other day but uh when we were making the first record i mean sometimes we'd play wednesday or th- we played thursday we had a study thursday night we'd drive up 
We play all night Thursday night, drive up Friday morning, record Friday afternoon, and then drive back and play Friday night sometimes. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, we were, you know, we were young and you know, we, we were determined to make a record. I mean, that was our dream to make a record. So we were going to do whatever they, whatever direction they pointed us in. That's where we went. Okay. Then they pointed you to, to New York, which was, uh, I guess. That, yeah, been, that was, very... that was a real, that was, that was a, an eye opener for us because that was the first extended stay with any of us that ever had in New York. And, um, you know, with all these great musicians and a great studio, it was just, you know, it was just uh, life-changing for me. Now, I'm curious. I want to ask about Pumping Iron, which I think is probably the most enduring track off this record. It's it's the one you play. Uh, you play it every night, right? Just about, yeah. Very rarely do we not play it. Let's put it, that it way. It's interesting because I didn't realize it was not one of the singles. No, it wasn't. It was not a single. So, the two singles for that for that re- particular record were uh, Junior's Bar, which is a slightly different version that's on the album, and uh, Hypnotized. But how does that work in terms of the selection process when you're picking a single for obviously an album that you're about to introduce to the world and, and you're hoping to, to spark something? Well, we primarily had no, no say in what single was picked. Oh, you know, interesting. We, that was the label. Yeah, we were just, the label picked it. And... Uh, you know, Pump and Iron has sort of been an enduring song for us, but at that time it was brand new. It was as new as any other record, song on the on the record. But it just, you know, it's it seemed to, Pump and Iron seems to have a certain swagger about it that has uh, really held up over the years. Yeah, it's got a great energy, and crowds love it when you play it. Yeah, it's a good one. It's always fun to play. It's my mother's favorite song, by the way. So. <laughs> oh, that's. <laughs> I, I want to ask soft spot in my heart. I, I want to ask about uh, another another a bar combination, old man's bar and junior's bar. The old man's bar really, I mean, it stuck out for the first time for the first time I heard it because it's not you on lead vocals. No. It's Gil Snyder. It's Gil. And it, to me, that song has a whole different different vibe to it than than the rest of the album. Well, um, we had gone through all the songs that we had prepared for the album uh quite quickly we were very prepared to do this record and and we had we were a couple songs short uh like running scared i know we 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 wrote uh running scared on the fly uh, at because uh, we needed a song and uh gilbert gil snyder came in one day with uh old man bar and it was you know if you grew up in pittsburgh uh you had all these small mill towns and all these mill towns had these bars that were very recognizable they had a certain look uh you know they all smelled the same you know (laughs) they all looked the same they all had the same type of food they all had a little bowling machine in the in the in the corner and uh you know, it was just part of the culture here in Pittsburgh where the older guys uh, would meet, especially in that period, uh, you know, World War II wasn't wasn't that f- long ago. And so the old guys that were retired, you know, were mostly World War II veterans. And um, so guys our age would go 
to these old men bars, when everybody would call them old man bars, to, to drink cheaply uh, before you went out and hit the town for the night. So you could go there and, you know, you could get you can get blitz for five bucks. I think <laughs> beer was like 50 cents, you know, 50 cent a beer. And uh, you'll come in with that arrangement. And it, you know, it, it felt like a folk song. Um, and Mick Ronson took it in that direction. And then one of the last things Steve Van Zandt did on the record, he came in and he heard it and he said, well, let's rock it. And he took it obviously in a whole different direction. And, uh, to the point where you know that the, I I sang the second version of it and and uh, rewrote the lyrics so it fit a younger generation, and um, they were both so good. Steve Popovich was the deciding factor. He he put them both on, and it turned out to be a really really uh, brilliant move on his part because uh, that combination that pairing of those two songs got us so much attention. Uh, you know, because it, it really told a story. The whole record was was built around uh, our lives at the time in Pittsburgh, when we were, you know, just coming up the ladder. Uh, Pittsburgh had a lot of uh, was like the hangover from the Super Bowl years. You know, we were the city of champions, and people had that that confidence about it. But at the same time. You could feel it in the air that the steel mills were going. They were they were going down the tubes, and it 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 really colored the whole city at that time because we lost a ton of population uh, right after the first and uh, the, the second and third record came out. You know, we lost we lost a quarter of our population in Pittsburgh just due to no jobs. It was something that I know has left an impact on the city to this day, right? Yeah, well, it's completely changed the the fabric of the city. I mean, it's, it's you know, Pittsburgh's like a progressive tech medical town now. And, uh, you know, when I grew up, it was like, you know, you had to fight your way out of one bar to go to the next one. It was very rough. <laughs> well, that's where you, you get the, the, the title track from, Have a Good Time But Get Out Alive. That's what right. it, you basically summed up, what, Pittsburgh bars in the 70s and early 80s? Well, our crowds were super enthusiastic. And to the point where they were almost dangerous in their enthusiasm. <laughs> and, uh, you know, there were fights and, you know, knocking stuff over and just crazy, out-of-control behavior almost every night. And I can remember we used to play two sets. And after the first set, I went to a bunch of guys that had been following us from the start and I said to one of them, hey, man, you know, have a good time. You know, get out alive. You're going to kill somebody, you know, with, and jumping up and down and smashing beer bottles and just being crazy. Um, I could, and I guess when I said that, it's, it, it rung a chord with me and stuck with me. And I, you know, I wrote the songs shortly thereafter. It feels very relevant in 2020, unfortunately, too. Yeah. <laughs> the whole concept of have a good time and get out alive. Well, you know, it's 40 years later, I was pleasantly surprised how, how fresh the album sounded, you know, which is a tribute to all the guys that produced it and the engineers. And uh, we had a gentleman named John DeClario remaster it, and he really did a great job. 
Well, it's really, it's it's a great record and a great listen. And if our listeners haven't heard it again, it's on streaming, it's on Apple Music, it's on Spotify. They can also get it, I believe, from Amazon and from Cleveland International on CD and vinyl. And it really is worth taking a listen to if you haven't heard it. And, totally uh, concur. It's this record. Everybody should know this record. This, this is the great lost American classic. How's that sound? <laughs> that sounds very good. Can we move on to American Babylon, which yep. we're also celebrating an anniversary. It's the 25th anniversary. 25th, 25 years are, of AB. Are you planning on doing anything in terms of that anniversary? Yes, we are. Oh, we're getting a little news here. Yeah, that's all I'm going to say right now, but we're working on that. <laughs> Okay. Hopefully, uh, that'll we'll get more news on that soon. Well, I, I, you know, I'm a bit of a pack rat, so I got all kind of stuff. Uh, on the uh, have a good time to get out alive. We put the bonus disc out, and uh, it, I had tons more material, live shows, and everything that w- we just went with one bonus disc. But uh, I, I got. Almost as much for American Babylon stashed. So, oh well, we will look forward to that. Yes, yeah, pretty good stuff. So, let us ask: How did that come about? From what we know, in late 1993, Bruce was working in LA with members of his 92-93 band, like Shane Fontaine and Zach Alford. They were working on a record that remains unreleased to this day. At some point, so you reached out to him, and I guess you wound up in the studio in LA, which is the genesis of American Babylon. Yeah, I was sort of uh, at the end of my rope. I had, uh, you know, it seemed like I was just working like crazy and not getting anywhere. I was I was teaching in this really uh, school with a lot of violent, violent uh, juvenile offender, uh, emotional distressed cases, and I was. Working at night, I was teaching at night, getting people their GEDs, and I was playing three or four nights a week. Uh, I had a steady Wednesday, and I was playing every Friday and Saturday, and it seemed like I just wasn't, I was just spinning my wheels. I I had made a, uh, this record called End of the Century, and um, we just couldn't get arrested with that record, so uh, my wife Leanne suggested that uh, you know I give Bruce a call, and maybe you know get Bruce to play a, a guitar or sing on one of my songs, and uh, so I was playing in uh, <laughs> a, a restaurant, one of our local watering holes, and I was doing an acoustic set, and uh, this was one of those gigs where I was only doing it for the money because. Uh, I need, I need, I think Johnny needed a pair of shoes or something. And <laughs> I was broke and nobody was listening to me. And, and it was one of those nights that it was just, Oh my God, I can't wait for this to be over. Which usually I don't get, I don't do gigs like that, but this particular night I was. And, um, I, so on a break, this pre cell phone, um, the, the manager of the bar came and he said, Hey, you better call, call home. Your wife is looking for, to talk to you so I, I went back in the kitchen and and uh, she said well bruce had called the house and and uh she gave me bruce's number so i called bruce from this restaurant uh the kitchen of a restaurant during my break and he invited 
invited me out to L.A. So uh, we went out to Los Angeles. It was in October uh, 93, I believe. And, uh, you know, we started working. Uh, we, we did um, chain smoking. And, and then we did Never Be Enough Time. And uh, then I, I think we went to New York. And, and uh, when we were working on uh, putting players on those two records, uh, I gave him some lyrics for Homestead. And he liked Homestead, and then uh, uh, then we did Homestead, and then and then I, I probably just uh, somehow persuaded him to do a whole record with us, you know? <laughs> and, and he wound up producing it. He wound up producing it and playing on everything. So the first time you first time you went out there, you went by yourself. You didn't bring it into right. the house strikers with yeah, you. Yeah, Bruce and I, you know, Bruce bas- basically played. Most of the instruments. I, I played the acoustic guitar and sang. Now, what was that like? You just told us a story that you were working in a restaurant, you were struggling, and suddenly you're now in the studio with, with Bruce Springsteen. Well, I was thanking my lucky stars, you know, because <laughs> uh, I've been very fortunate to work with really great people. I mean, I, were, I did a record with Steve Cropper, uh, Blood on the Bricks, and, you know, there isn't a better musician in the world than Steve Cropper. So, so Steve and I got to work together and I worked with Mick Ronson. I worked with Ian Hunter. I worked with Steve Van Zandt and I worked with Bruce Springsteen, you know, Pretty and, amazing. Uh, doesn't get that's, much better than that. It's, it's, you know, when people ask me, what's, what's it like working with Bruce? I said, it was like playing baseball with Mickey Mantle or Roberto <laughs> Clemente, you know? Yeah, that's, that, that's something. You know, when you play with the best, you, you, I like to think we up our game to keep with, keep up with the guys, you know? Oh, American Babylon is a classic record. Uh, more people should hear it. And hopefully when you do get some news of what the expanded edition will be, I, I hope that that gets a lot of attention. Yeah, I, I would love pe- more people to hear my stuff, period. <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, across I'm, the board. We made a lot of good records over the years. American Babylon is a special one, though. It's uh, It has a place, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of, Gave us a new lease on life. Myself, a new lease on life. Uh, I wouldn't be talking to you today probably if it wasn't for American Babylon. Well, there are, there are two songs on the album that, that are credited or co- you have a co- co-writer credit with, with Bruce, and that's, that's Homestead and Dark and Bloody Ground. Did one of you come up with the lyrics and the other the music? Uh, Homestead, I gave Bruce a set of lyrics. He came up with with the music and we collaborated on the last verse and dark and bloody ground. I had the lyrics and Bruce did all the music for that one. Interesting. All right. Is that, is that a way of working that, that you like? Uh, you know, I like working any way I can get work. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it doesn't matter to me, but you know, uh, you know, if, if Bruce Springsteen is, is using some of your lyrics to write songs with that, I think you're doing pretty good. Yeah. Well, and you also, when you did a guest DJ on Nisha Radio about uh, uh, eight years ago, nine years ago now, you played a version of Homestead that was Bruce's vocals only, but the music was different. Well, it was, you know, Bruce had a version of it. He has a version of it somewhere. Okay. 
That's all I'm saying. Yes. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, we get we get it. I okay. say no more. So don't <laughs> all right. We'll we'll, well get I, to his version of Idiot's Delight a little later. But sticking with the American Babylon theme. So you're working on this record. It gets underway now. Bruce is producing it. At some point in 1994, did you guys, how did Mars come about? Did you guys just decide that you were going to try out some of this material and you were going to find a spot to do it in Jersey? Uh, how did how did that develop? You know, Bruce and I had been developing a pretty close friendship and, you know, I called him up and asked if he wanted to come down and play with us. And we had taken the liberty of, uh, learning some of his songs or, and, uh, I, I'm, I, I can't remember, I actually tell you the truth, but uh, I know it was a hell of a night. Yeah, oh and my God. D I was, Dion showed I, I, up. I was like one foot from you guys. It was, that was a legendary night. I mean, you guys were on fire and it was pretty unique because you just mentioned that you had learned some of his songs at that point. Bruce really didn't do those kinds of sets in clubs. He'd even, he had played with you. Of course he'd played with many acts on the shore, but he'd never really shown up to do like a set of his own music. In addition to your songs. And of course you guys did Atlantic city that night and lucky town and darkness. That must've been a real thrill. Oh Yeah. And he was—he wasn't playing with the E Street Band at the time, you know. So he was between engagements, as they say. So, uh, you know, I uh, somehow persuaded him to come down and play play a bunch of his songs instead of you know just a, the normal bar gigs that you know guys our age do. You know that the, the uh, go go back to the tried and true songs that you know the vocabulary that that, that we all had. So it was it was it was a lot of fun, a lot of fun playing those songs, and uh, you know, to this to this day, we've you know we've been able to, uh, you know, when we do play with Bruce, play a bunch of his songs. So it's it's, it's always a lot of fun. I, I, I know a lot of E Street songs, so it's always they're always great to play. Late in that show, you mentioned Dion. I was when I I couldn't believe that Dion was on stage with you and with Bruce and everyone was there and he was doing the Wanderer. It was it was really amazing. Yeah, what a what a thrill that was, huh? Uh, it, I mean, as a musician to be on stage with Dion and he's doing the Wanderer. Yeah, that, that's got to be that's got to be right up there with your experiences. Yes, it is. It's one of my top. And then Bruce is over there look. He was trying to play that classic saxophone solo on guitar. You know, because so much of Clarence's stuff came from all those, you know, instantly recognizable saxophone solos from that era. You know, when, when Clarence would play a sax solo, you could sing it. And, you know, the same with The Wanderer. Now, you, and then a year later, you did you basically did did it again. And this time, you um, Steve Van Zant showed up and, and and Max Weinberg. Yeah, that, that was, was that that was a hot night, from what I understand. That was a that was a classic. I think they had more people in the club than the whole town, uh, the, the population of the town. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Seabrook's <laughs> not not a big. It was town. a hell of a night. It was like East Street uh, East Street House Rocker night. We were switching yeah. off songs. I think we even did Gloria that night. Now, that was in the lead up to the release of American Babylon. And then in October, when the record came out, you also booked a series of shows, which the October Assault shows. 
what did you think in terms of the, you got a huge amount of publicity for those shows. Of course, Bruce had basically become a house rocker for those couple of weeks. What do you remember about that? And what do you remember about those shows? Well, I just remember they were, they were incredibly fun shows to do. We, we had a blast doing it. And, uh, the positive thing was it, it, it was so much fun. It was so great you know, to have Bruce as a member of the band. And But, boy, I'll tell you what, he left. And, and like I said, in those days, we played all the time. And he probably wasn't even gone two or three days, and we were playing another gig. And, man, we missed him. You know, <laughs> it, was, it was just, uh, you know, it took us a while to get back to to the the lineup we had because uh you know he's he's obviously such a powerful player and presence that you know it just took the band to a new dimension i was but it was it was it was a lot of fun doing it and you know i'm forever grateful for him to 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 even consider doing that yet alone you know hanging out with us for you know a week or so doing seven or eight gigs and i mean it was just uh incredible I was very fortunate to see the first three shows on the October Assault Tour, and they were such classic rock shows. You, you think of legendary bar shows, and, and they were just so hot and steamy and energetic. It's it's a great memory. Well, we were very aggressive in, in our set selection. I, you know, chain, we played Chainsmoking in, in, in uh, Homestead, and that was about as as quiet as we got. The rest of them were just, you know, balls to the wall, <laughs> you know, turn the guitars up and just, you know, blast it out every night. You know, it's like a, you know, a steamroller just coming at you. The interesting thing was that Bruce really did sort of blend in as a member of the House Rockers, and he was really more of a lead guitarist. He did do a couple of songs where he sang lead vocals, but you were the leader of the band, and he was supporting you, and it was to great effect. Oh, it was, it was fun, you know, and he, he's a great guitar player, and he, and uh, I think that's the most guitar he's probably played before or since, you know. We got we got some we have have a couple live shows from Pittsburgh just incredible we got them uh, properly recorded. Will those be in the uh, expanded edition of American Babylon? <laughs> we'll have to wait and see. We're well, working the, on it. we're working on it. Well, the first time I, I saw you guys with Bruce was actually Nick's Fat City in, in March of '98, and yeah, I remember my ears bleeding practically the next day. I mean, you guys well, came out with the guitar. Uh, yeah, I mean, with the guitars just blasting away, as you said. Joffo, Joffo, our drummer says, you know, playing. He, he says playing next to Bruce is like playing the Learjet taken off. <laughs> oh, that's funny. I can see that. And then, then uh, your your son made a guest appearance that night, Johnny on uh, on drums, if I remember. Yeah, correctly. Johnny, he was just a little boy. I think he was eight years old. Wow. So it was like a, almost a family night. Yeah, I mean, that was a real homecoming night then. Yeah, yeah, it was fun, you know. Uh, uh, and again, I mean, it's almost incredible. I mean, Bruce drove out to join us that night. He drove out with his uh, his father-in-law, Joe. Oh, wow. And, uh, that's, and that's know, a long ride from New Jersey. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we had a blast. You know, I've, I've been very fortunate. He, he's been a really good friend and then, of course, uh, on on back in New Jersey, you've you've basically been the 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 
the headlining band at, at every light of day benefit show since since began in 2000. Well, you know, Bruce was really instrumental in 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 putting light of day on the map because he, he played with us uh, a bunch of times when it was just getting started. And, uh, you know, anytime Bruce lends his name to something, it, it becomes uh, exponentially bigger than, than it would have been if it was just, you know, Bob Benjamin and Joe Grishecki, Tony Palagrosi, Joe Durso, Willie Now, And you had Bruce Springsteen, and boom, you know, it, it, it's way bigger. And he, he's been very, very kind, uh, you know, offering his his, his time and in, 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 in his talent to that whole cause. And even this year, you know, he, he made a special appearance. Uh, he 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 made his way back. I, th- I think it was in Florida. He made his way back uh, just make sure he was there for the 20th anniversary this year. And of course, you know, that was one of the last live gigs we did with the pandemic. So Flynn and I were both there and uh, it was, it was a great night. It was, it was a, tr- yeah, it was a very, very fun night and I'm thankful I was there. Yeah, yes. it was fun. It was, you know, they're always, they're always a lot of fun. Bruce, Bruce is uh He's an entertaining guy. He's 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 fun to hang with. Now, in addition to the shows, it's my understanding you are very involved with the Light of Day organization, right? Well, as much as I can be living here in Pittsburgh, you know, uh, I have my certain duties that I try to fulfill for it. But uh, <laughs> I am on the the uh, board of directors. It's uh, you know, and we're both very supportive of it. We've also known Bob for quite a while, and. Uh, we should give it a plug. If you want more information on Light of Day, you can go to lightofday.org and and read what the organization does and, and more about the work they're doing for Parkinson's. And it's really a great organization and it's worth people's time to to both look into and, and maybe make a donation, especially this year when I guess, uh, no, I guess we're not going to be able to have a Light of Day concert series this year i imagine well i imagine it'll be virtual as as as, you know most things are these days but uh you know parkinson's really an insidious disease and uh you know bob is really really uh you know his um struggling right now uh you know with the effects of it and uh it's just it's just sad to see and he's he's such a courageous guy and it's uh you know he's an inspiration to all of us yeah, he is. And I'd, he was on stage at the end this year, and it was very touching when Bruce was doing Thunder Road and, Bo- and Bob was out there. Yes. Yeah, um, you know, it, it's it's such a great musical tradition, the whole Light of Day f- phenomenon family in, in New Jersey. It's, uh, you know, I'm grateful to be a part of it. And, uh, you know, that whole Jersey Shore scene around Asbury Park's very, very lucky to have something like that. Uh they should be very proud of uh, supporting Light of Day for all these years. Twenty years is a long time to keep keep a a, a group of musicians focused on something. <laughs> you know, it's like herding cats. But uh, <laughs> you know, so it's it's a lot of good work for everybody involved in it. Uh, it's we're just really happy that we're able to support it and. Just when you go, there's such a sense of community to what's going on when the shows take place and also beyond the shows. It's it's a wonderful oh, it's, thing. Yeah, it's a great weekend. You know, it's, it's a lot of fun. It's, it's very, uh, you know, it, there's a, a, a really positive 
vibration, <laughs> lack of a better word, in the air for the whole for the whole uh, event. Now they've been doing it for this was the 20th anniversary, as you said. 20 are years. Any, yeah. Are there any um, any shows from those 20 years that really stand out to you that you look back and say, "Wow, that was a that was a hell of a night." Well, they're all pretty. They've all been pretty good, as from <laughs> you know, from what I can remember. I mean, the last one was always special because it was twenty years. You know, we were able to keep it going for twenty years, and uh, you know, it's there. There's there's been some great ones. I mean, when it went to the Paramount, I think it everything picked up a notch. But uh, I remember one of the ones we did at the Pony with uh, Michael J. Fox was pretty cool. Michael okay, J. Yeah, Fox came played the light of day. Yeah, I believe that was two thousand three. That was actually one of the ones I missed. Yeah. I apologize. <laughs> so that was uh, that was a pretty special one, but they've all been great. I mean, you know, they're they're great when Bruce comes. They're great when Bruce is unable to make it. All the shows are great. There's there's so much talent that shows up, and uh, and you and you guys are having fun. Yeah, we're everybody's having fun. It, it's it's a it's a big party for everybody and, and there's like i said it's a very very uh very very fun weekend i, w- I was gonna go back to more of a, your some of your collaboration collaboration with bruce um he called you in what like late 97 and you guys did some writing that resulted in code of silence and a couple of others uh yeah i believe so uh I think we wrote wrote that the year that uh, Mark McGuire was hitting all the home runs. Nineteen ninety eight, yeah. Okay. It was ninety eight, yeah. I, I think I think we we wrote that in ninety eight. Okay, and then um, and then some of that stuff had, had ended up on coming home, but Co- but Code of Silence and I guess Thin Line ended up coming out on your albums much later. Well, they were great songs, and uh, you know. Uh, Bruce wasn't using them, so he he gave me permission to record them. Even though it was a, it was it was a co-write, he was, he was he did it. He would played both those songs for the uh, the East Street reunion, right? Nice, right. I, I think two thousand, two thousand. Yeah, he was playing both of them, um, but he didn't put them on, on any any records. So uh, so I thought. Uh, you know, I hated to see him go to waste, so I, <laughs> I used him. And then, and then you got you got Bruce to join you in the studio for those two. Yeah, yeah, we sort of. Uh, yeah, yeah, he he did. Not not I think of it. Yeah, he's he plays he plays guitar and and sings on both of them. And one more more recent collaboration was the that's what makes us great single that that uh, that you 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 and Bruce uh, worked on. I guess you wrote it. I wrote and, it, yeah. And then Bruce sang on it, and I guess he yes, played he guitar did. too. And that came out in just after the inauguration of our That's current right. president. Yeah. Uh, it was, what, 2016 now? In April. Yeah. I, th- I think it was 17, because he was... Yeah, he was, was inaugurated in 2017. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Right. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, that, you know, if I, I heard it, listened to it, preparing, obviously, for the show, and it... It works really well in, in in this election year, for me. Well, I, I'm a special education teacher, and I I was, um, 
I have an uncle who had cerebral palsy, and 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 my best friend uh, growing up, he had two really uh, severely handicapped brother and sister, and I was just I was appalled. I didn't know that much about uh, the Trump until I saw him. Um, I caught him one night on the news, you know, mocking the disabled reporter, reporter. and I thought, how could you know? I'd get fired from my job to do that. And how could anybody, you know, sink that low? Little did I know. So I was, <laughs> I sort of, uh, I was offended. So, so, you know, I, I, I wrote about it, uh, you know, the, the more I thought about it, I guess the more offended I got. And then I wrote the song and, you know, I, I think I sent it to Bruce and Bruce liked it. And, uh, you know, he said, Oh, let's, let's do this. So, so we said, we did it, uh, we did that one via long distance. That was that was uh, you know uh, the miracle of the internet <laughs> these days. Right. It was. I really liked the lines he he sang about. Uh, Don't tell me a line. Tell me it's a fact, because uh, that really goes back to what he was saying in two thousand four about the Bush administration and the Iraqi war. Well, you know, I, one night uh, after one of the elections, when they were playing, uh, we were doing Light of Day in November. Uh, we actually got booed when they introduced Bruce on a stone pony. So that was, that was a eye opener. Yeah, that doesn't happen very often. No, that no. does not. Was that, that, was that, I remember the, was that the same uh, probably night? When, were... Probably when he campaigned for Kerry so much. Uh, yeah. He, he put did. himself out there. Yes, he did. Yeah. That, but that's the same night they were chanting four more years. Uh, I, I'm not sure if they did that or not. I can just remember him being booed. Well, we're all booed, but he was with us. <laughs> <laughs> now, what other song that was also that was on Coming Home was Idiot's Delight, which just a few weeks ago, Bruce is doing this radio show on E Street Radio, and suddenly out of nowhere, he dropped his own version of Idiot's Delight. I assume you knew that existed? Uh, yeah. Yeah, but you know Bruce played that song when he he was doing uh, the Devils and Dust tour too. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, you know most of the songs that we've written together, uh, not all of them, but most of them he has his his own recorded versions of them. Now is now Idiot's Delight is it's a co-write between the two of you. So right. is it again? He's he's doing the the music and you're doing the lyrics. Pretty much. Yeah. All right. Well, I got to give you. a I mean, the lyrics are incredibly appropriate for these days. So, yes. uh, you were too much of a fortune teller, and you well, didn't even know it at the time. Yeah, it's just, it's surprised how, how things haven't changed that much. <laughs> I mean, American Babylon. If you put American Babylon on and listen to it, it's you know, I would never thought twenty five years later we'd still be dealing with the same subject matter. You know, we haven't progressed. Uh, all that far down the road. Uh, One no, could no. argue we've regressed, but you know, it's, I think it's technology has progressed. But you know, yeah, I mean, it you know, just like have a good time to get out alive. It's it, you know, sounded like it it could have been recorded yesterday. Uh, I think even American Babylon is even more pertinent now than when it came out. I can well, agree with that. That just gives us more reason to look forward to the expanded edition when when you have it ready. It's going to be a good one. Well, we're very excited yeah, we're to hear excited it. About it. We just started working on it. So, okay. So, and you said there's a lot of material to go through, like a lot, lot of your own demos and outtakes again. 
not too many outtakes. We were very efficient. We had one one song that didn't make the record. It was too happy. <laughs> <laughs> we didn't put it on. But uh, no, we you know when we used to work with Cleveland Entertainment, we actually had a um, record company would uh, in a, a budget. And part of the budget, they would fund uh, demo sessions so we could go in and see what we had uh, as far as the music went. This time, it was, you know, with American Babylon, it was pretty much uh, Bruce and I working on a bunch of songs and, and uh, about half the record. And half the record, uh, I had gotten together with the band and uh, rehearsed a bunch of stuff. And then we went up. I think we, we went to Los Angeles maybe for a week or, you know, something like that. Uh, Bruce had his studio in Los Angeles and, and, uh, you know, banged out the rest of the record. I can remember writing American Babylon and, uh, no strings attached all in the same night because I was, get, we were getting ready to go to, to do this record and, and we had no rockers never, you know, I was stuck in this mid tempo groove that I couldn't seem to get out of. But we were so excited about, American Babylon that I booked a studio here in Pittsburgh dude, and we, we went down and recorded it and and uh, it turned out so good that that was the track we used you know we didn't even try to, to top it we just kept the one we recorded here in Pittsburgh oh, you made the right call because I mean that's a, that's a great track yeah yeah it's a really good track really good song a lot of fun to play too and every, of course, every time I go out to Long Island, I see and I see the signs for Babylon. I th- I think of your album in that <laughs> song. <laughs> well, there was that old uh, old book, uh, Hollywood Babylon, that came out years and years ago. Uh, in my youth, I was a, a bit of a voracious reader. I didn't have a television, so I read a lot, I read and listened to music, and uh, I can remember having that book and. I probably put it in my notebook somewhere, American Babylon, you know, just to play on that, that particular, all the crazy stuff that happened in Hollywood. Mm. And, uh, I, I just thought it was a good image for, for a, uh, uh, a song. And then when Bruce heard it, he said, you know, right off the bat, uh, he said that, that that's, that's your, uh, that's your title song. Cool. And well, speaking of books, it's my understanding that you were inspired to write Homestead from a book you had read about, yeah, a, yeah. about a town I, outside Pittsburgh. I had, uh, well, Homestead was like the quintessential steel mill town here in Pittsburgh. That's where they had the big strike, fought the Pinkertons and legendary. And uh, back in the late 70s and early 80s, there there. Um, their steel, steel workers union was quite militant. They were the last of the diehard militant, you know, old school um, steel workers. And uh, I was friends with a bunch of them. And uh, we helped set up their first food bank for unemployed here in Pittsburgh. Anyways, a bunch of Pittsburgh bands got together and we played a show and we got seed money. So I became friends with them over the years, and uh, you know, people that were our fans knew knew we had that connection. And uh, at a gig one day, a guy comes up to me. One of our our, our guys has been seeing us play for years. Came up and hand me the book, and he said, "I thought you should read this," and uh, just inspired me to write write the song. 
And it also seems to me like Dark and Bloody Ground is, is about a, a similar kind of town. Obviously, it's a different tone, but it seems right. to be the same kind of town. Well, I'll tell you about Dark and Bloody Ground. We were recording Homestead in New York City. And the engineer said to me, are you from Kentucky? And I said, no. I said, I'm from Pittsburgh. I said, why do you ask? He said, well, uh, you know, it starts out, I was born in the coal fields of Kentucky. And I was writing, uh, I was becoming a character of one of the steel workers, steel workers I knew. <laughs> uh, and uh, so I used, you know, d- details from his life in the song. And, and the engineer said, have you heard of the Kentucky Cycle? The Kentucky Cycle was a, a play that uh, ran in New York City. It was like a six-hour play. And uh, it was about the struggle f- for land in Kentucky. You know, the first a white man against a red man, you know, brother and brother in Civil War, uh, coal miners against the companies, coal companies later. And it was this whole long play uh, that, that ran on Broadway for not, not, I don't think it had an extended run because it was so long. It was like a six hour play. And uh, I told the guy I was aware of it. And I come back from, from uh, rec- recording Homestead. And I was still working at night teaching GED. And in, uh, in this facility I was working when was a library that we had helped put together. And I come in and I sat down at my desk. And right on the top of the stack of books that somebody was donating was the Kentucky Cycle, and uh, so it was just it seemed like it it had to be those two songs, you know, both from both of them were inspired by reading these accounts. So one was a book, just sort of like a historical account of Homestead, and the other one was a, a fictional account of the the struggle for land in Kentucky. And the, the Native Americans called it the dark and bloody ground. And uh, so I, I took that and ran with it. And uh, I was, uh, in my mind, I, I, could, I had, uh, you know, I really encouraged Bruce to uh, write the music to it because it seemed like it was a bookend with Homestead to me. And both of those songs also, of course, share a little bit with his Youngstown. Right. Well, you know, it's a, you know that that was the fabric of uh, life here, and and, and uh, you know Youngstown was sort of, you know, a, a junior Pittsburgh. You know, same type of people. You know, same town built up around steel mills, only much smaller. You know, not quite as, uh, you know, as like a, a small town version of Pittsburgh. Well, I guess that was that kind of background and that kind of uh, interest in 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 that kind of town really probably bonded you, know. Well. For me, it was inescapable that that type of uh, town because it, that's you know I grew up in coal country. All my my family were all coal miners, and you know we were we were linked to the coal mines and in in the steel mills. That was just you know when you grew up, everybody's dad you know had either spent time in, in either or sometimes both of them. Though though the coal miners weren't as is inclined to work in the steel mills. But, uh, you know, it was just part of the culture here. Okay. 
wasn't right. a Jersey Shore, let's put it that way. You know? <laughs> well, well, Bruce's dad worked in the factory, so yeah. he was kind of familiar with that. Yeah, of course. You know, you, you got, you know, the the feelings of, of frustration and, you know, and uh, desperation sometimes, you know, they're, they're, you know, everybody feels that stuff. You know, you, you know, everybody has that, that, you know, everybody that they come up in the era that we did, their family were working class felt that. We talk about that all the time, about this universal aspect of, of these songs. You know, it's an amazing thing that you can do, which is to write something that's personal to you, but also have people out there saying to themselves, wow, there's a little me in that song. And I, I've never even met that songwriter. Well, yeah, I mean, that's that's the magic of. It's the magic of music, right? It's the magic of music when you feel like it's talking directly to you or telling your story. That's it doesn't doesn't get much better than that. Well, no, it you've done it incredibly well, and we've enjoyed talking about these records with you. It's been a real treat for us, and and we thank you tremendously. Well, my pleasure. Yes, thank you, thank, thank you. you for taking the time. And that was our conversation with Joe Gashecki. We. Uh, we certainly appreciate him taking the time to talk to us, and uh, that was a really fun discussion. Yeah, I had a great time talking to him, and I really hope our audience enjoys it. Anyway, I think that's pretty much it for this evening. Let's wrap up the show. None But the Brave is a presentation of Bull Market Entertainment. Please subscribe to the podcast on your platform of choice. That can be Apple Music, Spotify. We're on pretty much all the major ones. <laughs> and you can find us on the internet at nonebutthebravepodcast.com. If you want to interact with us, we love hearing from people. Reach out to us on Twitter at NBTB Podcast. So let's thank Joe Grishecki one more time. And for Hal Schwartz, I'm Flynn McLean saying we'll see you further on up the room. Thank you so much. We'll be seeing you. Hey, this is Aaron from No Simple Road. I'm inviting you to come hang out with Apple, Mel, and I as we talk with the musicians, artists, chefs, authors, and beyond from the world that turns us on. We're reaching into the improvisational music scene, the psychedelic culture, the festival world, and getting to know what makes the people tick that create those scenes. Come join us on the long, strange trip over at No Simple Road.